Last week at the end of Ruth chapter 3, you might recall, we ran into a bit of a plot twist, a little snag or complication on the road to marriage in this blossoming relationship between Ruth and Boaz. There was, we saw, as it turns out, another redeemer, and it was Boaz who revealed this to Ruth. And this other Redeemer has a closer relation than Boaz. And so this other Redeemer has a kind of right of first refusal in the redemption of Naomi and Ruth. And so now we have a situation where the the tension is heightened. And Boaz, who clearly wants to marry Ruth, is seen as first and foremost as a man of loyalty to the Torah. He knows what the Torah requires. He knows there's another Redeemer. So he tells Ruth about this other Redeemer. This book, this story, is really first and foremost about Hesed, covenant loyalty, above all else. The book of Ruth is about the divine kindness experienced through human kindness or Hesed. And it's in that context, the context of God's Hesed, His love, that it's also an understated and a lovely story of romance, if you will, love and redemption. And so we're going to look at the text. It's from Ruth chapter 4, under three headings that are there on the back inside page of your bulletin. At the gates, witnesses, and the prayer of blessing. So first, the scene at the gates. So this is the very next day. It's the next day after Ruth and Boaz's encounter on the threshing floor, that odd, strange, nocturnal encounter that we looked at last week. And chapter 4, verse 1 tells us that Boaz went up to the town gate. Now, as you know, the town gate was the center of the town's life. It was the place for public meetings. It was the place where business and legal transactions were enacted and handed down. And Boaz sits down... At the gate, the text says, just as. He happens to sit down just as. There's that silent, providential ordering of God, which is shot through the book in the little details of life. He sits down just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned comes along. And Boaz says to him, come over here, my friend, and sit down. Now the words, my friend, really means something like such and such or so and so, which is why I'm calling this guy Mr. So-and-so, which a number of translators do. Now, Boaz certainly knows who the man is. It's important to get this. But notice, the narrator will not name him, and we shall come back to this. So Boaz gathers ten elders who would have jurisdiction in these matters, He sits them down, and then he says to the other Redeemer, again, notice he's unnamed. He says, Naomi's come back from Moab, and she's selling this piece of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. This is the first time we've heard about this land, by the way. But certainly, buying it would be part of spreading his garment over Ruth. Naomi's selling the land, or perhaps the usage rights to the land, most likely because she and Ruth need the money to live on. 
And this land is almost certainly in very bad condition. Right? If it was in good, fruitful condition, then you would think that Ruth would have been gleaning on this land and not in Boaz's field. Right? So this land is probably overrun, but it needs to be sold. In any event, Boaz has brought it to the man's attention, and he asks for a decision. And Mr. So-and-so says, I will redeem it. I will redeem it. Now, he's probably looking at this, probably looking at this as a good long-term business deal. It's a good investment. I mean, he certainly knows that this sort of commitment, this type of obligation would include raising up offspring for the dead relative. Now, remember how this would work. The offspring would bear the name of its dead relative, and the male offspring would inherit the property. Right? And that, thus keeping the property here in the household of Elimelech, that's the whole point of the story. That's why we do this. But, Mr. So-and-so is probably thinking, Naomi is old, and she's past childbearing years, so I will have to care for the widow for a while and maintain the land, but when she dies, the land will enrich my estate. It will fall to my family line. And if he has a son, his son will inherit. So it's just for him a no-brainer. It's a pretty good business deal. And then Boaz sort of clears his throat. Like Columbo, if you ever saw those old Columbo shows, where Columbo always has just one more question, and it's the crucial question. He sort of clears his throat and says, oh, by the way, there's, there's, one, there's one more thing. On the day you buy the land, you also get Ruth, the Moabite. He, Boaz here, is, Boaz here is, is poisoning the well, as they say. Just, just so you know, she's an ethnic stranger and a foreigner, a Moabite. You also get Ruth in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Well, this changes the calculus. Now, if Ruth has a child, and by the way, notice Ruth's been childless through the 10 years of her marriage to Malan in Moab. She's been childless previously for a decade. But if she does have a child, that child inherits. And no benefits accrue to Mr. So-and-so and his estate. And now, well, now there's the extra work of caring for the wife and the possible offspring. You can see Mr. So-and-so's wheels turning, right? Like Little League and piano lessons and braces, college tuition. I got to put an addition on my house. He can do the math. And so he says, no, nah, I, can't, I can't redeem it. I can't redeem it. He says, it might endanger my own estate. You can see that right there in the text. It might endanger my own estate. You do it yourself. You redeem it yourself. And then we're told about this odd custom of legalizing transactions there where they swap, where the one party gives the other party a sandal. Not, not that odd if you understand that this is the land where when your foot treads in this land... You know, God says the earth is his footstool. Every place the sole of your foot treads, I've given it to you. So Mr. So-and-so takes off a sandal. He hands it to Boaz, symbolizing that the land is now Boaz's land. That's it. In case you missed it, that little shoe transaction, 
before these ancient justices of the peace? That was the wedding. That was the wedding. Saves on a lot of wedding preparation expenses. Not good for the wedding industry, for big wedding, but there it was. Take your shoe off, give it to me, the wedding's over. In New Testament terms, redemption entails a wedding. That would be the deep theological point here. When you redeem the land, redemption entails a wedding. And so that brings us to the second point, these witnesses. You know, Boaz announces in verse 9, your witnesses that I bought Naomi and all the property of Elimelech, that's the land portion of his work as redeemer. And he continues and he says, I've also acquired Ruth. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite. He embraces her ethnic status. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite. Malon's widow as my wife. And why has he acquired Ruth the Moabite? Why has he acquired this widow as his wife? Well, he tells you. He tells you. Now, this is not the most romantic wedding speech ever given. But it's a demonstration of his costly hesed. He says, he lifts up his little champagne glass and says, I've I've acquired Ruth, the widow of Milan, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. That's That's why. That's the seed portion of his work as a redeemer. And this was critical to Old Testament Israelites. I know it seems strange to us, but this is codified in the Torah because it symbolized belonging to the God who covenanted with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The covenant with Abraham promised seed and blessing, offspring and land. And to be removed from the land was to be removed from the blessings of the covenant. And this all points us, of course, to Christ, whom Paul calls the seed of Abraham. In Christ, you are the seed of Abraham, plural. Christ is the seed of Abraham, singular. Right? And in Christ, we're promised the land, a new heavens and a new earth, which the meek inherit as his redeemed bride. Redemption entails a wedding, and it entails a land. So this stuff is a little strange to us, but it's built into the warp and woof of God's purposes with Israel that culminate in Christ, of which you partake. Right? So all of those at the gates are witnesses, Boaz says, and they affirm it. In verse 11, they reply, we are witnesses. We are witnesses. So the third point then here is this prayer for blessing. First, there's a, a blessing prayed for on Ruth. The elders and the people here say, may the Lord make this woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah were barren, but together they built up the family of Israel, gave birth to many of the patriarchs, right? So it's, it's a magnificent blessing because it's as if the people at the gates sense that something that they can't quite put their finger on momentous is happening here. Israel is floundering in the times of the judges, And they pray that Ruth will be a builder of the house of Israel. That she'll, like, raise up the ruins. I mean, it could just be boilerplate wedding blessing stuff. But it turns out that this prayer is going to be answered beyond their wildest imaginations. And and notice something else about this blessing they pray for. 
It entails Ruth's full public reception and recognition in Israel. Right? Ruth the Moabitess, they pray that God would make her like the matriarchs of Israel. You can't get a more accepting embrace of the foreigner than that. May she be like the great women who form the house of Israel. She's left family, and she's left lands, and she's left possible husbands for Yahweh's sake, and now he's restoring those to her now, even in this age. And second, there's a prayer you'll notice here for a blessing prayed for Boaz. May you have standing in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem. We'll, we'll return to this. Third and finally, a blessing is sought for Boaz and Ruth's future offspring. Verse 12, through the offspring that the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, this is at first blush odd. I mean, Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, evokes an earlier Leverite marriage. That's why it's being used here. That's a situation where seed had to be raised up for a dead relative. And so the author is referring to that same seed. It's a sordid story. You can read about it in Genesis 38. And Ruth is not like Tamar in very critical ways. But they were both outsiders. They had both lost their husbands, and they both needed the help of a near relative to have offspring. And so Perez is born of Judah's incest with Tamar, his daughter-in-law. That Perez, born of that relation, is the ancestor of Boaz. And he's the ancestor of all these Bethlehemites gathered together at the gate for this legal transaction. And if you look through the Old Testament about Perez, you can see he had a number of renowned offspring. So this is a somewhat prominent clan. Now, what the people at the gate couldn't know, though, was that this union of Boaz and Ruth, through it, Perez's line, would lead to King David and eventually to Jesus Christ. So this is also a prayer that's answered beyond the wildest imaginations of the people praying it. Again, at this point, it's probably just a prayer that God would bless your marriage. So by way of conclusion here, I want to make two related points of application. One is about Mr. So-and-so, and the other one's about Boaz. So the first is about Mr. So-and-so, the first redeemer, the one who declined when he found out he had to marry Ruth. Now, he has a legal right to decline. The Torah does not make this oblig- you know, obligatory. No one would contest him for declining. And no one would say he was a bad person. But he does stand as a warning because he plays it safe. He was going to lose time and money and possibly eventually lose the land. And for him, this meant he wasn't going to engage in a long-term, costly ministry where he could see no personal payoff. Now think about what this entails on his part. He's not going to do this. He's not going to do this in spite of the fact that there are two desperate widows and three dead males who are his very near relatives. So I'm going to come down a little hard on this guy, okay? But I think you'll see why by the time I'm finished. 
He says no, but remember, this is not just, these are not just random people. These widows are his kin. It doesn't matter to him. He says, the law does not oblige me, I decline. So he goes home, right? And he'd have Christian friends who congratulate him on being wise and judicious. You can't take all that on. That would be reckless. You have too much on your plate. You have to take care of your own family. He's worried about his own estate. He says so in the text. He's too calculating to see the hand of God and what God might do. He asks clearly, he's asking, what's in it for me? And so he ends up protecting his own material legacy. He's not going to place his plans and his life strategy, his future, at the disposal of another. He's going to hedge against the risk. And what he does here is he protects his legacy. He ends up burying his talent. He ends up passing here on what will prove to be the extraordinary legacy of participation in God's redemption of the cosmos. That's what he's passing on. He can't see it because he thinks like a bookmaker. He can't see it. He's blind to the logic of the book, namely that the path to fullness leads through emptiness. He's not going to lose his life to find it. And if you think that perhaps I'm being too hard on Mr. So-and-so, what I've just outlined is precisely why he is nameless in the narrative. Boaz, of course, knows the guy's name. It's a small town. Everybody knows who the guy is. The narrator refuses to name him. Everyone at the gates knows who this man, what this man's name is. But he is being literally and literarily, literarily erased from the history of Israel. The silence, the refusal to name him, to remember him in the text by the author is pejorative. Right here, anonymity means judgment. Anonymity means judgment. And so like Orpah earlier in the narrative, this guy turns back, he disappears. He's invisible. Don't be like him in evaluating your life choices or your ministry commitments or your self-giving. It's too easy. It's too natural for all of us. We're calculators. After all, we're Americans. Rather, consider Boaz. This is my second application. Boaz could have declined as well, but we've already seen the type of person he is. He's not a man who uses the loopholes in the law. And part of the reason for that is he sees the law itself as a gift of Yahweh's hesed, his kindness. The law is meant to instill in us a spirit of generosity and compassion, especially toward the poor and the widow. It's not just an obligation. It's that in doing this thing, we imitate God himself in his tenderness and in his concern for the broken and the marginalized and the least of these. Right? This is at the very heart of what it means to reflect the heart of God in the world. Now, Boaz is a man of substance. We were told that. He has wealth. He has a legacy to protect. He has assets to guard. He knows that this land will never be in his family name. Remember that. He's buying land that he will really never own. And he knows that if he and Ruth have a son, the son inherits an Elimelech's name, not his. He understands this. 
But unlike Mr. So-and-so, he's uncalculating in his generosity. He does understand the logic of the book, right? He understands that the way to fullness is through emptiness. And he's full. Boaz is full. He's a man of substance. And he pours his substance out on the empty that they might become full. Right? Like Christ. For the love of God, for the love of his bride, he puts his name and his security at risk. You know, we could say, in concluding here, we could say that the book of Ruth is really all about names. Right? Verse 10 says that Boaz marries Ruth to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Boaz cares more for this name, Elimelech's name, than he does for his own well-being. And in verse 11, the people pray. Notice this, verse 11, the people pray for Boaz that he would have a great name in Bethlehem. You know, Mr. So-and-so is forgotten. Nobody remembers his portfolio. And Boaz has been extolled throughout the ages in Bethlehem and beyond. Do you know what's happened here? Boaz has given up his substance and he's made a name for himself. A perpetual, everlasting name. Right? Through his kindness, he's become the ancestor of the one who we celebrated Advent. The one who being full, being in substance, equal with God, the one who being rich beyond all splendor, emptied himself into our humanity at Advent for our sake, to fill our emptiness, to secure your and my forfeited inheritance. That one. And having laid aside his name, his reputation, his glory, for the love of the Father and the love of you, his bride, He has received a name that's above all names. You see the dynamic. The way to fullness is through emptiness. The way to have your name renowned is to pour yourself out. And so let then those of us who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, let us imitate the hesed and the generosity of Boaz this Advent. Because in doing so, In doing so, what we do is we tie our legacies. We have them drawn into the mystery of the word made flesh, made kinsman, made redeemer, made bridegroom. Amen.